Chapter 10 of Journeys to Baghdad. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Gordon S. Jones, Draper, Utah. Journeys to Baghdad by Charles S. Brooks Through the Scuttle with the Tin Man. Yesterday I was on the roof with the Tin Man. He did not resemble the Tin Man of the Wizard of Oz or the Flaming Tin Man of Lavengro, for he wore a derby hat, had a shiny seat, and smoked a ragged cigar. It was a flue he was fixing, a thing of metal for the gastronomic whiffs journeying from the kitchen to the upper airs. There was a vent through the roof with a cone on top to shed the rain. I watched him from the level cover of a second-story porch as he scrambled up the shingles. I admire men who can climb high places and stand upright and unmoved at the gutter's edge, but their bravado forces on me unpleasantly how closely I am tied, because of dizziness, to Mother Earth's apron strings. These fellows who perch on scaffolds and flaunt themselves on steeple tops are frontiersmen. They stand as outposts of this flying globe. Often, when I observe a workman descend from his eagle's nest in the open steel frame of a lofty building, I look into his face for some trace of exaltation, some message from his wider horizon. You may remember how they gazed into Alcestis' face when she returned from the house of Hades, that they might find there a token of her shadowed journey. It is lucky that I am no taller than six feet. If ten, giddiness would set in and reversion to type on all fours. An undizzied man is to me as much of a marvel as one who in his heart of hearts is not afraid of a horse. Maybe, after all, it is just because I am so cowardly and dizzy that I have a liking for high places and especially for roofs. Although here my people have lived for thousands of years on the very rim of things with the unimagined miles above them and the glitter of Orion on their windows, so little have I learned of these verities that I am frightened on my shed top, and the grasses below make me crouch in terror. And yet to my fearful perceptions there may be pleasure that cannot exist for the accustomed and jaded senses of the tin man. Could he feel stimulus in Hugo's description of Paris from the towers of Notre Dame? He is too much the gargoyle himself for the delights of dizziness. Quite a little could be said about the creative power of goose flesh. If Shakespeare had been a tin man, he could not have felt the giddy height and grandeur of the Dover cliffs. Ibsen would not have wrought the climbing of the steeple into the crisis and calamity of the master builder. Teufelsdruch could not have uttered his extraordinary night thoughts above the town of Weisnichtwo. Prometheus Bound would have been impossible. Only one with a, at least a dram of dizziness could have conceived a, quote, eagle-baffling mountain, black, wintry, dead, unmeasured, end quote. In the days when we read Jules Verne, was not our chief pleasure found in his marvelous way of suspending us with swimming senses over some fearful abyss? Wet and slippery crags may be, and void and blackness before us and below, and then, just to give full measure of fright, a sound of running water in the depths. Doesn't it raise the hair? Could a tinman have written it? But even so, I would like to feel at home on my own roof, and have a slippered familiarity with my slates and spouts. A chimney sweep in the old days doubtless had an ugly occupation, 
and the fear of a sooty death must have been recurrent to him. But what a sable triumph was his when he had cleared his awful tunnel and had emerged into daylight, blooming, as Lamb would say, in his first tender nigritude. I seem to remember, he continues, that a bad sweep was once left in a stack with his brush to indicate which way the wind blew. After observing the tin man for a while, I put on rubber shoes and slunk up to the ridgepole, the very watershed of my sixty-foot kingdom, my legs slanting into the infinities of the north and south. It sounds unexciting when written, but there I was, astride my house, up among the vents and exhausts of my former cloistered life, my head outspinning the weathercock. My Matterhorn had been climbed. Quote, the pikes of darkness named and stormed, end quote. Next winter, when I sit below, snug by the fire, and hear the wind funneling down the chimney, will not my peace be deeper because I have known the heights where the tempest blows, and the rain goes pattering, and the whirling tin cones go mad? Right now, if I dared, I would climb to the roof again, and I would sit with my feet over the edge, and crane forward and do crazy things just because I could. Then maybe my neighbors would mistake the point of my philosophy and lock me up, would sympathize with my fancies, as did Sir Toby and Maria with Malvolio. If one is to escape bread and water in the basement, one's opinions on such slight things as garters and roofs must be kept dark. Be a free thinker, if you will, on the devil, the deep sea, and the sunrise, but repress yourself in the trifles. I like flat roofs. There is in my town a public library on the top story of a tall building, and on my way home at night I often stop to read a bit before its windows. When my eyes leave my book and wander to the view of the roofs, I fancy that the giant hands of a phrenologist are feeling the buildings which are the bumps of the city, and listening I seem to hear his dictum, Vanity. For below is the market of fashion. The world has sunk to ankle height. I sit on the shoulders of the world, above the tar and gravel scum of the city, and at my back are the books, the past, all that has been, the manners of dress and thought, they too peeping aslant through these windows. Soon it will be dark, and this day also will be done, and burn its ceremonial candles, and the roar from the pavement will be the roar of yesterday." Astronomy would have come much later if it had not been for the flat roofs of the Orient and its glistening nights. In the cloudy north, where the roofs were thatched or peaked, the philosophers slept indoors, tucked to the chin. But where the nights were hot, men, banished from sleep, watched the rising of the stars that they might point the hours. They studied the recurrence of the star patterns until they knew when to look for their reappearance. It was under a cloudless, breathless sky that the constellations were named and their measures and orbits allotted. On the flat roof of some Babylonian temple of Bel came into life astrology, quote, foolish daughter of a wise mother, end quote, that was to bind the eyes of the world for nearly 2,000 years, the most enduring and the strongest of superstitions. It was on these roofs, too, that the planets were first maligned as wanderers, celestial tramps, and this gossip continued until recent years, when at last it appeared that they are bodies of regular and irreproachable habits, eccentric in appearance only, doing a cosmic beat with a time clock at each end, which they have never failed to punch at the proper moment.
Somewhere, if I could but find it, must exist a diary of one of these ancient astronomers. And from it I quote in anticipation, quote, Early this night to my roof, it runs, the heavens being bare of clouds, calo aperto, set myself to measure the elevation of Sagittarius Alpha with my new astrolabe, sent me by my friend and master Hafiz from out Arabia. Did this night compute the equation? A equals paren dx over 2t close paren f paren a b c capital T sub 3 close paren. Thus did I prove the variations of the ellipse and show Hassan Sabah to be the mule he is. Then rested, pacing my roof even to the rising of the morning star, which burned red above the sultan's turret. To bed, satisfied with this night. Close quote. Northern literature has never taken the roof seriously. There have been many books written from the viewpoint of windows. The study window is usual. Then there is the college window and the thrums window. Also, there is a window viewpoint as yet scarcely expressed, that of the boy of Stevenson's poems with his nose flattened against the glass, convalescence looking for sailormen with one leg. What is un philosophe sous les toits but a garret and its prospects? But does Souvestre ever go up on the roof? He contents himself with opening his casement and feeding crumbs to the birds. Not once does he climb out and scramble around the mansard. On wintry nights, neither his legs nor thoughts join the windy devils that play tempest overhead. Then again, from Westminster bridges, from country lanes, from crowded streets, from ships at sea and mountaintops, have sonnets been thrown to the moon, not once from the roof. Is not this neglect of the roof the chief reason why we northerners fear the night? When darkness is concerned, the cowardice of our poetry is notorious. It skulks, so to speak, when beyond the glare of the streetlights. I propound it as a question for scholars. Tis now the very witching time of night when churchyard yawn and hell itself breathes out contagion to this world. Why is the night conceived as the time for the bogies to be abroad? An evil thing that walks by night in fog or fire, by lake or moorish fen, blue meager hag or stubborn unlaid ghost that breaks his magic chains at curfew time. Why does not this slender, Carulian dame keep normal hours and get sleepy after dinner with the rest of us, and so to bed? Such a baneful thing is night, hideous, reeking with cold shivers and gloom from which morning alone gives relief. Pack clouds away, and welcome day, with night we banish sorrow. Day is jocund that stands on the misty mountain tops. But we cannot expect the night to be friendly and wag its tail when we slam against it our doors and, until lately, our windows. Naturally, it takes to ghoulishness. It was in the south, where the roofs are flat, and men sleep as friends with the night that it was written, quote, the heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament showeth his handiwork. Close quote. I get full of my subject as I write, and a kind of rage comes over me as I think of the wrongs the roof has suffered. It is the only part of the house that has not kept pace with the times. 
To say that you have a good roof is taken as meaning that your roof is tight, that it keeps out the water, that it excels in those quantities in which it excelled equally 3,000 years ago. What you ought to mean is that you have a roof that is flat and has things on it that make it livable, where you can walk, disport yourself, or sleep, a housetop view of your neighbor's affairs, an airy pleasance with a full sweep of stars, a place to listen of nights to the drone of the city, a place of observation, and if you are so inclined, of meditation. Everything but the roof has been improved. The basement has been coddled with electric lights until a coal hole is no longer an abode of mystery. Even the garret that used to be but a dusty suburb of the house and lumber room for early Victorian furniture has been plastered and strewn with servants' bedrooms. There was a garret once, somewhat misty now after these twenty years. It was not daubed to respectability with paint, nor was it furnished forth as bedrooms but it was rough-timbered and resounded with drops when the dark clouds passed above. On bright days a cheerful light lay along the floor and dust motes danced in its luminous shaft, and always there was cobwebbed stillness. But on dark days, when the roof pattered and the branches of trees scratched the shingles, and when windows rattled, a deeper obscurity crept out of the corners. Yet there was little fear in the place— this was the front garret, where the theater was, with the practicable curtain. But when the darker mood was on us, there was the back garret. It was six steps lower, and over it the roof crouched, as if to hide its secrets. The very men that built it must have been lowering, bearded fellows, for they put into it many corners and niches and black holes. The wood, too, from which it was fashioned, must have been gnarled and knotted, and the nails rusty and crooked. One window cast a narrow light down the middle of this room, but at both sides was immeasurable night. When you had stooped in from the sunlight and had accustomed your eyes to the dimness, you found yourself in an uncertain anchorage of old furniture, abandoned but offering dusty covert for boys with the light of brigands in their eyes. A pirate's den lay safe behind the chimney, protected by a bristling thicket of chairs and table legs to be approached only on hands and knees after diverse wrappings and back there in the dark were strange boxes strange boxes stout and securely nailed but the garret has gone whither have the pirates fled maybe some rumor of the great change reached them in their fastnesses and then in the light of early dawn in single file they climbed the ladder up through the scuttle and straddling the ridge pole with daggers between their teeth, alas, they became dizzy and toppled down the steep shingles to the gutter to be whirled away in the torrent of an April shower. Ah, me! Had only the roof been flat, then it would have been for them a reservation where they might have lived on and waited for the sound of children's feet to come again. Then when those feet had come and the old life had returned, then from aloft you would hear the old cry of, Ship ahoy! And you would know that at last your house had again slipped its moorings and was off to Madagascar or the Straits. Where shall we adventure today that we're afloat, wary of the weather and steering by a star? Shall it be to Africa a steering of the boat, to Providence or Babylon or off to Malabar? So a roof must be more than a cover. The roof of a boat, its deck, 
is arranged for occupation and is its best part. Consider the omnibus. Even it has seats on top, the best seats in fine weather. When Martin Chuzzlewit went up to London, it was on the top of the coach he sat. Pickwick betook himself, gaiters, small clothes and all, to the roof. Even the immaculate Rollo scorned the inside seats. He sat on top, you may remember, and sucked oranges to ward off malaria, he and that prince of roisterers, Uncle George. De Quincey is the authority on mail coaches, and for the roof seats he is all fire and enthusiasm. It happened once, to continue with De Quincey, that a state coach was presented by His Majesty George III of England as a gift to the Chinese emperor. This kind of vehicle being unknown in Peking, quote, it became necessary to call a cabinet council on the grand state question. Where was the emperor to sit? The hammer cloth happened to be unusually gorgeous, and partly on that consideration, but partly also because the box offered the most elevated seat, was nearest the moon, and undeniably went foremost, it was resolved by acclamation that the box was the imperial throne, and for the scoundrel who drove, he could sit where he could find a perch. Close quote. Consider that the summer day has ended, and that you are tired with its rush and heat. Up you must climb to your house roof. On the rim of the sky is the blurred light from the steel furnaces at the city's edge, and paneling this stands a line of poplars stirring and sounding in the night wind. Alone upon the housetop to the north I turn and watch the lightnings in the sky. Is it fanciful to think that into the mind comes a little of the beauty of the older world when roofs were flat and men meditated under the stars and saw visions in the night? Once upon a time, I crossed the city of Nuremberg after dark. The market cleared of all traces of its morning sale. The Schoenerbrunnen at its edge, the narrow defile leading to the citadel, the climb at the top, and then I came to an open parade above the town. Quote, Except the Schlosskirche Werdecock, no biped stands so high. Close quote. The night had swept away all details of buildings. Nuremberg lay below like a dark etching. The centuries folded and creased in its obscurities. Then from some gaunt tower came a peal of bells, the hour, maybe, and then an answering peal. Thus stands the night, they said. Thus stand the stars. I was in the presence of time, and its black wings were brushing past me. What star was in the ascendant I knew not, and yet in me I felt a throb, that came by blind, circuitous ways from some far-off Chaldean temple, seven-storied in the night. In me was the blood of the stargazer, my emotions recalling the rejected beliefs, the signs and wonders of the heavens. The waves of old thought had but lately receded from the world, and I, but a chink and hollow on the beach, had caught my drop of the ebbing ocean. End of chapter 10 End of Journeys to Baghdad by Charles S. Brooks